Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we look this morning at the Gospel of John, chapter 21. We'll be looking at the verse 25 verses of John 21. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, words written for you and written for me. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. That's the same thing as the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. Then they went out and got into the boat But that night, they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple, whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, They saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these, meaning more than the other disciples? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. 
And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Please turn over your insert. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but merely if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, before we begin, I want to give you a little road map about where we're going to be going sermon-wise for the foreseeable future. Today, we're going to finish the series we started weeks ago about the life and ministry of Jesus. And next week, we're going to start with a new series about the life, ministry, and theology of the Apostle Paul. And so we're going to start in the book of Acts, and we're going to look at some key passages related to the Apostle Paul, how he was converted, how the Lord used him, the mission to the Gentiles, the march to Rome, and then we'll look at particular passages from the Pauline epistles and see how he continues to develop what it means to serve Christ in this dark and difficult world that we live in. So that's kind of where we're going. But as it relates to our passage this morning, the disciples have left Jerusalem and they have now followed Jesus' orders to wait for them by the Sea of Galilee. It's been probably at least two weeks since the crucifixion, and our story picks up with Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John. They were the sons of Zebedee and two other unnamed disciples. And Peter announces that he's going fishing. Now, his desire to go fishing has been the subject of much debate. In fact, someone, another minister who I went to seminary with, um, I read his comments on the passage, and here's what he had to say about why Jesus went fishing, or why Peter went fishing. He writes, Peter, James, and John have now experienced amazing things as disciples of Jesus. They've walked beside him, witnessing his mighty acts of healing. They've listened to his teaching. They've even participated in miracles. Yet, they returned to their old ways, fishing for fish instead of men. The reason is clear for why they did this. After his denials, Peter was acutely aware of his own inadequacy, aware of his failings, his weaknesses, Rather than stepping into the resurrected life and moving forward to be an apostle, Peter reverted back to merely being a fisherman. Evidently, he brought the others with him. He was discouraged 
and disillusioned. In other words, at this point, Peter decided to leave the ministry. He decided to, to go back to his original vocation as a fisherman because he was so despondent over what had happened. With all due respect to my colleague and former seminary friend, I would charitably disagree. I don't think that that's the way we should read this. The disciples were by the Sea of Galilee for one very straightforward reason. The angels had told the women, go tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. Jesus had told the disciples before he died and after, await for me in Galilee. So they were simply following his orders, awaiting further instructions. They knew by this point that he was going to ascend. Remember how he told Mary, don't cling to me. I've not ascended to my father and yours. So they knew at this point that they were going to be witnesses in his name. They knew that Jesus was going to ascend at some point. But they also knew they were supposed to wait for him in Galilee so that he could continue teaching them and ministering to them during this key time. So they had not left the ministry. They were waiting for Jesus, of course, and um, Jesus uses this as a platform for teaching, okay? And it's totally within Peter's personality. If you were to do kind of a, a personality investigation of Peter, I mean, he was a guy who, like, needed action. He needed to be busy. He needed to do things. And so if he's sitting there by the Sea of Galilee waiting for Jesus, he's like, I, I want to go fishing. Let's, let's go. And so they went with him. I think it's as simple as that. Now, what's fascinating about the first half of chapter 21 is that John provides some bracketing. He provides some literary framing, indicating to the reader, okay, that he wants you to glean something in particular in the first half of the chapter, okay? In verse 1, John starts out his last chapter by saying that Jesus revealed himself to his disciples, okay? And then we get this uh, miraculous uh, encounter by the Sea of Galilee with this miraculous catch, this amazing haul of fish. And then what does John say in verse 14? He says this is now the third time that Jesus has revealed himself to his disciples. So he brackets that section. Verse 1, Jesus revealed himself. Then in verse 14, Jesus revealed himself. The question is, what does Jesus reveal about himself between those two refrains? That's what I want us to consider this morning. Okay, so who are these disciples? What was their experience? What was their background? Prior to their call to the ministry, these men were fishermen. That was their vocation. More than anything else in the entire world, they knew how to fish. They knew every nook and cranny of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, we shouldn't think of it like this massive ocean. It was, it was like a lake. It would be like a large Texas lake. And they knew every aspect of that lake. They knew where to fish. They knew when to fish. They knew how to fish. All those things. Fishing was their expertise. The text indicates that they fished all night, John points out, with no success. At daybreak, 
They hear a voice from the shore asking if they had caught anything. Many commentators think that they probably interpreted that as someone who was interested in buying some fish from them. They said no. He says, cast your net on the other side. A seemingly arbitrary uh, request that would make no difference at this point, but you know they didn't see the harm in it, and so they did. And of course, what happens next? They catch the mother load. So many fish that normally speaking, their nets would break. Interestingly, John informs the reader of how many fish? 153. Now, scholars over the year have spilled much ink investigating, you know, perhaps some symbolism behind the number of fish, okay? Now, just this morning, uh, a new visitor to the church uh, asked me, when I do the Lord's table, he said, is there any symbolism by the fact that you actually, you break the bread, okay, but then when it comes to the cup, you use the small cup and you don't use the big cup, okay? And he was thinking perhaps there might be some, some symbolism, some significance to this. And I said, unfortunately not. I just tend to pick up the small cup and not the big cup, you know? It's really just as straightforward as that. The number of fish, the reason that John lists 153 is because there were 153 fish that they caught. It was very common for fishermen to number their catch, okay? This was a massive haul. John points out they weren't small fish. They were huge, large fish. At the end of this story, John tells the reader this was now the third time that Jesus revealed himself. And so what's happening here is that Jesus isn't just revealing himself. He's revealing something significant about himself. He is revealing something they need to know. So like we see is the case with many of the parables. Okay, this is like a living parable. This is like an enacted parable. This is like a, a platform for Jesus to teach something in particular. And here's what he taught. If you can't catch fish successfully without me, which you're better at than anything else in the world, then you can't do anything without me. Okay, that would be like Jonathan not being able to, to play or, or write music or something, you know, not being able to do something that, that he is skilled and gifted and trained to do more than anything else. This is the point. If you can't cat, cash, catch fish without me, you can't do anything without me. You certainly can't catch men without me. I think it's probably the case that the disciples were under the illusion that things were going to be very different now that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Wouldn't that be your expectation if you were an apostle? You have seen the risen Son of Man in His glory. You have seen these new properties, these new powers that He possesses. You understand that you're going to be His witnesses all over the world. What would be your expectation about how ministry would look going forward? You would think, I would think it would be different. 
okay, that we would expect much more success. It would be much easier now that we have a risen Savior. Well, that was not going to be the case. It wasn't just going to come easy because Jesus had been glorified and raised from the dead. It was going to be very difficult, extremely difficult. Jesus, in a few days, was going to ascend to the right hand of his Father. And his disciples were going to be left with, an, with a seemingly impossible job. And I want to try to put this in context. What these disciples were going to be asked to do. I want you to understand how crazy this message would have sounded to the ears of the Jews, UK, in a, in a few days when Peter and John preached the first sermon that, that C.S. Lewis talked about. So in just two weeks, two or three weeks, just, just, a, just a few days, or maybe a little longer, they were going to be in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost. It's the same thing as the Feast of Weeks. It celebrated the, the coming in of the wheat harvest. Peter and John were going to be preaching the first sermon in front of tens of thousands of hostile Jews. These are the same people who just a few days before had handed Jesus over to be crucified. In their minds, what happened to Jesus? Okay, the Jews that would soon gather in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, what did they think happened just a few weeks before? So Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. That's when the first Christian sermon occurs at the temple. What did those Jews think happened to Jesus, to this Nazarene? They thought that he had been exposed, humiliated, and crucified, which, which had happened. And what did they think about what that meant for this movement? What did they think? They thought that ended it. They thought that falsified it, okay? Now imagine you're Peter and John. You've got to stand up in front of the very people that asked for Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. In front of the very people that said his blood be on our own heads and on the heads of our children. In other words, we'll take responsibility for handing him over. They were going to preach in front of those people that his death actually achieved victory. I cannot convey to you how strange that would sound. That would be, and this, this is definitely a comparison from a lesson, lesser to a greater. So like instead of having Jenna lead our singing, this would be like Jonathan asking me to sing a solo, torturing all of your ears. I mean, if you heard me do that, I mean, but then Jonathan trying to convince you that I was the greatest soloist in the history of the world. Like, I mean, I mean it would be just absurd. Do you understand how absurd the gospel message would have sounded to the Jews when it was preached 50 days after his crucifixion? That what you saw just a few yards ago actually meant that Jesus was the Messiah and the Savior of the world. 
Many of the Jews in their minds would have been saying, like, are, is this a joke? Are you kidding me? That's what you're asking me to believe? That, that the man who was publicly executed was actually God Almighty. I can't convey to you how crazy that would have sounded to those Jews initially. And yet that's what the disciples were going to be asked to do. Do you think they were going to be able to do that in their own strength and power? Do you think there was any hope for success apart from the blessing, provision, and power of the Lord Jesus? No way. Soon they were going to find out that they needed him more than ever. This message is reinforced in Jesus' restoration of Peter in verses 15 through 23. So after the breakfast, so they have this breakfast, um, and incidentally, at the breakfast, it's really not incidental, but at the breakfast, Jesus was also communicating to them that even though they couldn't do anything without him, they would have roles in the Great Commission. What's interesting in the text is Jesus asks them to bring their fish, even though he already had the breakfast ready, which was a, which was a, a sign that they were going to cooperate, that he was going to use them. Okay, this was going to be a partnership. And then he reinforces this with Peter, verses 15 through 23. After breakfast... Jesus asked Peter to take a walk with him. We find out that later through the story, that they're on this walk together, okay? And later, see, John is following. He's kind of following from a distance. He's kind of eavesdropping. He's listening in. Reminds me of Stephanie when I'm on the phone. Like, I'll be on the phone, having a conversation, answering questions, wondering something. I'll hear a voice in the background answering the question, having no idea that she was listening, it's her spiritual gift, one of her many spiritual gifts. Um, she says she could work for the FBI or the CIA. Um, at any rate, Jesus asked Peter to take this walk so that he could restore him and recommission him personally. Peter had denied Jesus three times, and so Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Uh, the text indicates that the third time, Peter is particularly grieved. Why do you think that is? He understood the, symbol of it, the symbolism of it. He had denied him three times. Now he's being questioned three times. He's being restored three times. And in response to Peter's assurance, each time, Jesus said, feed my sheep. Interestingly, you know, and again, these are just so many details that John... Um, includes, he mentions that in this text, did you notice the kind of fire that John says Jesus had stoked there for the disciples when he invited them to breakfast? John says it's a charcoal fire. That's not a coincidence. There's only one other time that John mentions a charcoal fire. And it's the charcoal fire that, G that Peter was using to warm his hands in the courtyard of the high priest when he denied Jesus three times. And so there's rich symbolism there as well, okay? He is restoring Peter. He's recommissioning Peter. Peter had been doing ministry in his own strength 
and had failed ministry. Like in the text at the beginning, when Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? In other words, Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples? Why did Jesus ask Peter that? Because when Jesus predicted that, that he would be forsaken by his disciples, do you remember what Peter said? Peter said, if everyone else does, I never will. If you get forsaken by all the rest, I'll remain faithful. Peter had been doing ministry in his own strength and power in many ways the disciples had as well, and they would not be able to do this in this new missionary enterprise. That was not going to be an option. Jesus also tells Peter after he restores him, this is going to cost you everything. Look at verses 18 and 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, so he's predicting how Peter's going to die. It's very poignant. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, Peter would die a little over 30 years from this statement. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where, do, where you do not want to go. And then you see the parenthetical statement by John. This he, Jesus said, to show by what kind of death he, Peter, was going to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, you cannot do this in your own strength and power. Do not trust in yourself, trust in me. It's gonna cost you everything. And as we said last week, tradition tells us, good tradition, that in a, little over than, in a little over 30 years, Peter would be crucified upside down in Rome for testifying that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Okay, verse 20. So this is kind of, you know, sobering to Peter. This is kind of overwhelming to Peter. You know, because if you're Peter, again, you're expecting now that Jesus is glorified, okay, that, that things are going to go much more smoothly. And now you've just been told you're going to die in a difficult way. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it? That is going to betray you. Now that's John. John is telling you. That's John's veiled disclosure. He's the author of the book. He was there. He's telling you what's going on. Verse 21. When Peter saw him, meaning saw John, that John was following them, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? In other words, is he going to die too? There was a little rivalry between Peter and John. Verse 22. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter, look to me. Follow me. Don't get distracted by what does or doesn't happen to John. Okay, this is what has gotten you into trouble all along the way. Minister in my strength, in my power, relying totally on me. Apart from me, Peter, you can do nothing. 
along the lines of what I mentioned earlier, and I'm done here. Again, I don't have the words to convey how absurd their message would have sounded in the days immediately following the crucifixion of Jesus. It would have sounded absurd. I'm calling on you to give your life and take up your cross and follow a person that was crucified just a few days ago. Humanly speaking, it had no chance. There's, there's nothing that has been like this in the history of our world regarding any world religion. Humanly speaking, this had no chance. Humanly speaking, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter and John would have been arrested and strung up, and it would have ended right there. Instead, they go preach what seemed to be craziness, and, and do you know what happened? What does history tell us what happened? It spread like wildfire. We, lead, we read from later writings that, that, that in other secondary sources that it turned the world upside down. This message. Friends, this message is true. This message is powerful. Are the obstacles to ministry today are every bit as large as they were then? Like in our modern context, for many people, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it sounds absurd. In the 21st century, the age of technology, the age of science, it seems absurd. I'm sure there are people that work with you that know that you're a conservative Christian, and they, I'm sure they like you as a person, but they probably think you're a little crazy. It seems asinine. But it's true. And the power of the gospel is the most powerful thing in the world. But we cannot minister the gospel, we cannot live the Christian life in the power of our own strength. If the disciples couldn't fish without him, they couldn't do anything without him. We can't live without him. We can't work without him. We can't thrive in marriage without him. We can't wake up in the morning without him. God would call us in this passage to be a humble people, a dependent people, a people that rely on him for everything. And Jesus says the same thing to us that he said to the disciples and that he said to Peter. Don't worry about those other things. All you got to do is follow me, trust in me, love me. Pray with me, my friends. Our gracious God and Father, what a timely reminder, what a wonderful reminder, what a powerful reminder that the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful and effective and that it's changing the hearts and lives of people all over the world. Even today, it is amazing that we are here celebrating a message that is over 2,000 years old. It is amazing to see what this message has done for people and nations 
all over our world. There are people right now, Heavenly Father, from almost every tribe and nation and people group and language that are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is only due to one thing. It is true. And your Holy Spirit is using that message and applying that message and superintending the impact of that message today. Father, we thank you that that same power is at work in our hearts and our lives. Remind us, Lord Jesus, that apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't so much as even move. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.